greetings to all the acharyas and namaskaras to adarnya mohanji and others hindu is born religious lives religiously and dies religiously therefore hindu by itself is a sacred hum sab pavitra hai कंसेप्शन के भी गर्भाधान संस्कार की भी विधि है अंत्येष्टि की भी विधि है सो यू कैनॉट हैव हिंदू लाइफ विदाउट हिंदू धर्म अगर कोई ऐसा कहता है कि मैं हिंदू हूँ लेकिन धर्म में नहीं मानता हूँ देन इज और शी इज नॉट हिंदू हिंदू हैज टू बी प्रैक्टाइसिंग हिंदू एंड एज पूजा स्वामी जी गेव अ स्लोगन डूरिंग 2014 election hindu vote is sacred <laughs> but everything is sacred and everything is religious even bathing is religious we invite gangeji yamuna chaiva not for the body but the lord within we do this or wear ornaments it is shungar for ishwara sitting in the heart and the most sacred of all sacred is our temples <laughs> so there is nothing secular as swami ji would say in bharat except the government which is constitutionally secular we have to have a religious bharat for bharat to make vishwaguru and britishers and muslim हम कहेंगे नाभ की यह सत्ता को उन्होंने पकड़ के दबा दिया तोड़ना शुरू किया जो आदरणीय मोहन जी ने बताए कि हमारी पूरी जिंदगी का केंद्र ही मंदिर था सभी चीजें मंदिर से ही थी उसी को तोड़ दिया जब धर्म तोड़ना हो गया तो संस्कृति तोड़ना सरल हो गया अभी वहीं से हमें पुनर्जीवित करना है और ये जो चारों मुद्दे मोहन जी ने बताए उसी के ऊपर ही चर्चा होनी द फर्स्ट सेशन जो है कि रिसोर्सिस का दुरुपयोग कितना किया है हमारी संस्कृति में राजा धर्मदंड से तो था ही था लेकिन राजा अपने आप को भगवान का सेवक मानता है दूसरा मैं दृष्टान दूं आज भी जगन्नाथपुरी में राजा झाड़ू लगाता है रथ यात्रा जब निकलती है युद्ध हुए उनके पुरखों के कि झाड़ू वाले को बेटी नहीं देंगे तो उसने कहा मैं नहीं तू भी झाड़ू वाला है भगवान का दैट इज एटीट्यूड दैट इज सिंबोलाइज्ड बाय रामायण कथा कि भरत जी पुटिंग पादुका अगर मैं मॉडर्न जारगन में कहूँ तो भगवान इज द चेयरमैन राजा इज ओनली सी एग्जीक्यूटिव ऑफिसर है सब संपत्ति वो उसकी है इसीलिए मंदिर में सब संपत्ति थी जब राजा ही ऐसे जीता है तो हम घर भी उस तरह से वास्तु करते तो भगवान है इसीलिए हमारे सभी मंदिर में बहुत संपत्ति थी क्योंकि मानसा ऐसी थी जो मैनेजिंग डायरेक्टर के पास होता है उससे ज्यादा पर्क चेयरमैन के है तो जैसे अंगराज लगाने के लिए कुब्जा थी भगवान की तो मंदिर में सिर्फ चिंदन घसने वाले हैं 
मंदिर में भगवान को उठाने के लिए गीत गाने वाले हैं मंदिर में रसोई करने वाले तो राजा धीराज है वो सब संपत्ति को कैसे लूटा है इट्स ओनली नॉट मनी थाउजेंड्स एंड करोड्स ऑफ एकर्स ऑफ लैंड लूट के चले गए और हमें खुशी है कि हमारी टीम ने अंडर द लीडरशिप ऑफ सी एस वी एंड आर वी वेंकट रावन जी पी आई एल से सब डेटा है हमारे पास बहुत सारा डेटा है कि किस किस प्रकार से कहाँ कहाँ संपत्तियों का दुरुपयोग किया है तो पहला सेशन यह है कि क्रिटिक ऑफ द गवर्नमेंट कंट्रोल ऑफ द टेंपल मेन थीम यह है कि गवर्नमेंट शुड नॉट मेडल फिर भी मॉडर्न मॉडल में दे आर सपोज टू रेगुलेट नॉट कंट्रोल रेगुलेटरी एजेंसी टुक द चार्ज ऑफ कंट्रोलिंग सो वो डिस्कशन में है एंड मिसमैनेजमेंट ऑफ टेंपल रिसोर्सिस दैट विल बी द फर्स्ट सेशन इसकी प्रारूप ऐसा होगा कि जो जो वक्ता होंगे वो सिर्फ पंद्रह मिनट बोलेंगे जब हर बार होता है वैसे कॉन्फ्रेंसिस में गाड़ी लेट ही चलती है यू नो एक टिपिकल जोक है इंडिया के बारे में वो इंक्वायरी के पूछता है कि साहब दस बजे वाली गाड़ी कितने बजे आएगी <laughs> so, उसी प्रकार से कॉन्फ्रेंस ऐसा ही चलती है अभी भी ऑलरेडी वी आर लेट बाय हाफ एन आवर सो विल कट डाउन टेन टेन मिनट्स ईच फ्रॉम वन सेशन सिर्फ पंद्रह मिनट दे विल प्रेजेंट द सब्जेक्ट बाद में फ्लोर इज ओपन फॉर डिस्कशन यू मे रेस क्वेश्चंस पैनलिस्ट आल्सो विल रेस क्वेश्चंस विद ईच अदर तो उस प्रकार से डिस्कशन चलेगा हम सच में सात्विक प्रयास कर रहे हैं कैसा डॉक्यूमेंट करना चाहते हैं और बाद में भी रामदेव जी वगैरह ने कहा उनके पास जो जो बैटरी ऑफ लॉयर्स है सबसे बैठ के एक पूरा डॉक्यूमेंट तैयार करना है सो मंदिर मठ मंदिर के लिए ऑल ब्रेन्स आर पुट टुगेदर एंड वी हैव अ सॉलिड आर्ग्यूमेंट्स इन द कोर्ट ये भावना से सभी आचार्यों के आशीर्वाद से ये सभा शुरू हुई है पुनः सबके आशीर्वाद की कांक्षा करते हुए मैं सबसे पहले हमारे नेता सी एस वैद्यनाथन जी ये देखिए जो मैंने कहा ना हिंदू लाइफ सेक्रेड है ये ऐसे महापुरुष है कि कोर्ट में आर्ग्यूमेंट करते थे भगवान का तो चप्पल निकाल के करते सुप्रीम कोर्ट कि भगवान की बात करने में भी पवित्रता होनी चाहिए चाहे कोर्ट रूम क्यों ना हो <laughs> तो ऐसे पवित्र महापुरुष से शुरू हो तो अच्छी ही बात नाउ फ्लोर इज योर सर प्रणाम्स टू ऑल आचार्य आदरणीय मोहन भगवत जी परमानंद जी esteemed friends and guests my thanks to hindu dharma acharya sabha for giving me this opportunity hindus were worshiping the god through fire the oblation was through fire it was about 2500 years ago that we started building temples and we did pratishta of the symbolic representation of the god in the idol the deity before that we were worshiping nature 
construction of temples needed land needed resources the rajas who were running a theocratic state or who were really representing dharma they funded and they wanted to ensure that the resources made available were utilized properly that is said to be the origin for some kind of a state control as was said a little while ago between the 5th and 12th centuries we had massive constructions huge temples rock cut temples and through devotion of the people and munificent contribution from the rajas and the wealthy these temples came up temples were not just places for worship that was of course one of the prime reasons but temples became premier institution of the hindu community as comprehensive religio cultural activity where instruction music dance sculpture arts all these were made available they were centers of learning centers for piety and centers for learning centers for dispensing justice centers for providing relief to the poor so temples had a very very important role our scriptures ordained ishta and purta therefore you had one sacrifices vedic sacrifices you also had substantial contribution for development of tanks wells etc you will find next to the tank a small ganesh similarly you will find people used to donate for chaultries dharmshalas for treatment of people for for shade trees and in tamnad uh, we call it sumaitangi that is for where the person who is walking with burden he could rest the bag on top of that and then walk take rest for some time and walk these are all kind of endowments that the hindus were ordained to do that is the origin simultaneously when there was a renaissance with shankara he set up the mats mats were not known earlier there were the rishis who had their own places but the formalized mats came in after shankara and followed by ramanuja madhva various other acharyas and considerable endowments were granted by the kings by the wealthy for these also and these also had to be looked after during the period when the turks and the 
Islamic rulers came and indulged in wanton destruction, plundering. Their focus, as was said earlier, was on taking away the wealth. But whatever lands had been endowed and could not be taken away by them, they remained still under the control of the temples and muds. During the Mughal time, there was in fact a decree that no new temple should be built. Some existing temples were destroyed, more particularly by Babur, Shah Jahan and Aurangzeb. No further endowment was given to the temples or much. Some were taken away and converted into mass or other places. But whatever remained used to be administered by the temples and muds. <clears throat> when East India Company came, their focus was, I'm talking about the period between 1500 to 1800, early eight, 19th century. Their focus was on trade and commerce. They were interested in peace and maintenance of law and order to, in order to ensure that their trade and commerce was not affected. Whenever disputes arose in regard to management of temples or much, they helped resolving because they, it ensured peace for their advancement of their trade and commerce. They also charged or started charging some kind of tax says they started collecting dues for protection of the temples and the muds. It was in early 19th century, in 1810, in Bengal for the first time, a regulation was made by the company's directors because the formal takeover by the emperor had not come. 1810 regulation in Bengal was followed by 1817 regulation in Madras Presidency. And the purported object was a lot of property and lands were endowed by the previous governments, which included the Rajas also. And they were being siphoned off or not by or were not being utilized for the purpose for which it was intended and therefore there needs to be some regulation. This was the basis on which for the first time in this country a formal regulation came in 1810 in Bengal followed in 1817 in Madras presidency. In 1830s onwards strangely it was the Christian missionaries who said you should not have any control or superintendence over the temples and mosques because you are effectively trying to subsidize wherever there were not adequate funds with the temples or mosques. So you are not giving me, the church, any money, but you are giving them in the garb of regulation so don't do that. So in from 1830, the Christian missionaries 
wanted government to give cede control. And between 1833 and 1850, there was enormous settlement. All the lands which had been endowed to the temples and muds, these were sought to be regularized. A complete census was taken of all the lands which were with the temples and muds. And Inam settlement took place during this period and in lieu of certain tax and in, in the south it used to be called the Melvaram, the revenue, and the Kudivaram was given to the temple, that is the right of the land was given to the temple or to the institution. This kind of settlement took place and settlement took place in west also in Maharashtra and various other places. By 1857, when the mutiny took place, the concern of the empire was that we need to have control over India and we should keep off from any interference with religion. Therefore, in the proclamation of Victoria in 1858, and I want to quote this, Victoria's Proclamation of 1858. Firmly relying ourselves on the truth of Christianity and acknowledging with gratitude the solace of religion, we, dislike, we disclaim alike the right and the desire to impose our convictions on any of our subjects. We declare it to be our royal will and pleasure that none be in any wise favored, none molested or disquieted by reason of the religious faith or observances, but that all shall alike enjoy the equal and impartial protection of the law. And we do strictly charge and enjoin all those who may be in authority under us that they abstain from all interference with the religious belief or worship of any of our subjects on pain of our highest displeasure. Therefore, Victoria Declaration is an important landmark where the mandate was that the state shall keep away from any interference in the religious faith or belief or the religious institutions and this was therefore followed by the 1863 Act, Religious Endowments Act, which was enacted with the express purpose of relieving the boards of revenue, because the boards of revenue were controlling under the 1810 and 1819 uh, regulation. Boards of revenue were relieved from their powers of superintendence and administration over the mosque or Hindu temples. The, it's, uh, this is another important landmark. Now, it appears that when the land settlements had taken place and control had completely been ceded, a few of the institutions, and I say a very few, because there are thousands of temples and muds, 
But in a few of the institutions, there seems to have been misfeasance or malfeasance and maladministration. As a result of which, a cry arose from amongst the members of our own community. And that is where I think there is a very, very important need. Unity is extremely important because anytime anybody sees power, property, asset, there is a clamor for it. Some quarrels take place. Therefore, when somebody is in control, somebody else points out, look, he has done this, therefore remove him. This is how, again, attempts were made to bring in governmental control after 1863, after the act of, after 1858 proclamation and 1863 act, our own people, at least nine bills were proposed in various, whether in Bengal or in Madras, from 1872 onwards. And it was in 1920 that the Charitable and Religious Act, Trust Act, came in in 1920 by the imperial legislation. This was mainly to ensure accountability. There was no direct control even at that time. Therefore, accountability in regard to funds and some kind of transparency. But strangely, the Madras legislature did not feel that it was good enough. And therefore, for the first time enacted in 1925, followed in 1926, Act of 1927, the Hindu Religious and Charitable Endowments Act, which was applicable to the Madras Presidency, which included not merely Madras, but the then Madras Presidency included parts of Karnataka, parts of Andhra Pradesh, even up to Orissa, some parts which are in Hyderabad, then Hyderabad area, and also parts of Kerala today. This thereafter came to be replaced by the 1951 Act and then the present Act, which is 1959, and patterned after that, you have the Acts in several other states. We will, I am not going into the details for paucity of time, but suffice it to state that what was intended as a kind of a superintendence to ensure that funds were used in a transparent manner, in a proper manner, and were accounted, gave rise to a total bureaucratic setup which even went to the extent of directing how much money can be spent for Nivedanam, for Abhishekam, for... So therefore, even the religious parts have today virtually come under the control of the departments. That's a sorry state which is today, and they, they were intended to protect the lands, huge, I mean, running into several lakhs of acres, and they are being leased out for nothing, and the temples don't get the income. That's the sad state. That is what exactly it was intended to prevent, but that is what the government officials are doing today. I want to mention two other things and then conclude this part. In the 1960, a commission was appointed, CP Ram, headed by C.P. Ram Samir. And 
former Chief Justice Patanjali Shastri, who gave evidence before the commission, was totally against any kind of governmental interference. But there were other witnesses who spoke to the contrary. Ultimately, they recommended a kind of legislation, which there was a bill introduced by the then law minister, Mr. A. K. Sen, in 1965, which was limited to ensuring one, registration of all institutions, and two, that regular accounts are submitted. And if any disputes arose, a tribunal to be constituted for that purpose to resolve the disputes. This, of course, never saw the light of day. That would have been a good proposition, uh, a central legislation. Therefore, that would have done away with the various state legislation. In fact, during the course of the day, we need to discuss the 1863 law and the 1965 bill and whether we should persuade the central government to have a kind of legislation which will be very, very nominal in terms of ensuring accountability and transparency. That's all that is needed. And today, with accounts can, can be put up on the website, every day's collections in the temple can be put up. There are two aspects. One, the uh, three aspects. One is the religious part, which should be completely kept away. The lands, there should be proper accounting and ensured that either it is leased out and accounts received. That is the second part. Third, whatever are the collections in the temples or muds, they should be properly accounted and should be utilized for the benefit. Therefore, these are the three aspects which need to be taken care of. But we have reached a stage where I think under our constitution, a democratic, secular constitution, we do not have today the Raja or the colony, but a democracy. And all religions have to be treated equal. And therefore, as was mentioned earlier, ultimately, if you can have schools, colleges, hospitals, companies, all of them being run by those who promote themselves. I don't see the logic of the stakeholders in respect of temples, namely the devotees and the religious heads and the priests not having total control, subject only to proper accountability and transparency. That's my a broad overview in regard to uh, the opening part of it, and I'll be, I'll, whatever, for further discussion. I'm very grateful. My pranam to all Acharyas here, Mohan Bhagavad Ji. I am not here to speak really, I'm here to learn only. I grew up in Bengal. All my childhood, the philosophy and folklore associated with Thakur Sri Ramakrishna as uh, was taught by Swami Vivekananda has been the bedrock of my religious training. I have had the uh, good fortune for whatever reason, these are also matters of destiny, of presenting on behalf of various institutions, clients, states, uh, arguments in the Supreme Court on many of these temple matters in the recent past. I don't know how I have got into this, but 
the result is that I find myself often debating both sides of the issue. In the Sabrimala case, in the Padmanabhaswamy case, in the Pandharpur case in Maharashtra, in the Ma Kamakya Mandir case in Assam, and some others. Uh, Swami Vivekananda always has emphasized over and over again that the primary contribution to human civilization of our land is spiritualism and religion. He insisted that whatever be the way forward for this country, its bedrock has to be spiritualism and religion. And with that in mind, what I wish to do just now is only to indicate certain basic viewpoints because what this conference seeks to do and where the state of law in this country is, is vastly different. So, my purpose here is to only indicate the, in very broad detail, where we stand as far as the legal position is concerned in the relationship between religious institutions and the state. So, since we work under a secular constitution, the relationship between the state and religious institutions is bound to be complicated because the government is a secular government, it cannot actually run or control religious institutions. The constitution of India is, was a fresh start, whether it was a start which satisfies the requirements of this society fully or it doesn't, it was certainly a fresh start. And therefore, while we need to look at the various legislations which are there, which may have even been there before the constitution, we must start with the presumption that at the time of framing of the constitutions, enlightened minds in this country surveyed the position and took a decision as to what should be the future pattern. And so therefore, subject to whatever defects may have shown up in this structure over a period of time. I think we do not have to worry about now what were the motives of our colonial masters, what were the motives of the Islamic rulers of this country, etc. The constitution makers recognized that religion was central to this country. It recognized that even the Universal Declaration of Human Rights by the United Nations had spoken of the freedom of religion, but it also recognized, in my understanding, that there were several aspects of religion which, unless it was reformed or controlled or regulated, I should say, I, I am not personally uh, very clear about the distinction that we seek to make between control and regulation. Laws which are framed by the state are laws. 
which either stand the test of the constitution or it doesn't. Now, there was an understanding that there were aspects of religious practice in this country which were not for the benefit of even the devotees, the poor devotees, the, those who are not in a position to control the institutions. So what they did, they provided in the fundamental rights in this country, the doctrine of freedom of religion, both of individuals, Article 25, and of institutions, religious institutions or organizations in Article 26. Now, the scope of Article 26, of course, is a matter of debate. And it may be that in the course of the last 72 years, it has been very narrowly interpreted. It, can, it may be that what is a religious denomination may, in fact, be have to be redefined. It has, has to be given a wider meaning. And if it is given a wider meaning, much more of what is sought by this particular uh, gathering here today, much of it will, may be in fact achieved because religious denominations are given very, very strong rights to protect themselves in matters of religion, in matters of property, etc. It is only this that the Supreme Court has confined the definition of religious denominations to those religious organizations which uh, have one, uh, three characteristics. One is a distinctive philosophy which may not be the general philosophy of Hinduism. Number two, a name and number three, an organization. The result of it, and many of us feel that it may not be it is somewhat anomalous. The result of it is that religious denominations which satisfy this test get substantial protection and religious institutions which do not satisfy the test of being a religious denomination appear to get less protection. That's, that, is a, that, that, that is an aspect which may be gone into. So therefore, just to understand the difference, Ramakrishna Mission has been declared to be a religious denomination. So it has full protection under Article 26. But Kashi Vishwanath Temple in Banaras is not a religious institution. That was the substance of the Chidambaram case which Subramanian Swamiji was, had piloted through the Supreme Court. And there, of course, there are several legal arguments possible as to why it did not actually change the law relating to Article 26, but that is a matter of detail and I don't want to go into it. So we have two sets of rights, 25 rights which are for individuals. Now individuals include, even the Matadipati is an individual, he can exercise his right of freedom of religion as an individual and he is not precluded from claiming his rights under 25 merely because he is heading a religious institution. That is clear from the very source of our religious jurisprudence, if I may call it that, in this country, which is the Shirurmat case. And the Shirurmat case is a judgment by a judge 
जस्टिस बी के मुखर्जी विजन मुखर्जी हु इज इवन टूडे दी ओनली ऑथर हु इज साइटेड इन एवरी कोर्ट ऑन रिलीजियस ऑन द लॉ रिलेटिंग टू रिलीजियस एंडाउमेंट्स ही वॉज अ मैन ऑफ डीप पायटी एंड ही वॉज आई वुड सजेस्ट हैड अ वेरी डीप अंडरस्टैंडिंग ऑफ द मैटर्स दैट ही वॉज डीलिंग विद इन दैट केस नाउ वॉट ही डिड वॉज टू गिव अस ए डेफिनेशन of religion which is something that bhagwat ji was talking about a little while back and there is of course a feeling that the word religion has not been correctly defined by our legal system but if we look at it for a few for a minute then perhaps some of the unease that has been felt may go away why do i say this because in the shirurmat case it was recognized that the word religion in our constitution means and connotes certain things what does it connote one it is not necessarily theistic it is not necessary that god is at the center of the religion why because in this country we have buddhism and jainism where god is not necessarily at the center of the philosophy number 2 religion undoubtedly has its basis in philosophy there is a philosophy behind every religion but particularly in this country it is not confined to beliefs it is not just the philosophy which matters apart from doctrines and beliefs a religion may prescribe rituals and observances ceremonies modes of worship which are regarded as integral part of the religion and these forms and observances may even extend to food and dress and all that are matters of religion and if they are essential now that is of course something which the the judges said that it, if it is an essential aspect of the religion then it enjoys the protection of the constitution not every aspect of rituals and observances may be essential to the religion but many are the court therefore had to take upon itself from time to time the question as to whether a essential religious practice was involved in the dispute which came before the court is the hereditary trusteeship an essential aspect of hindu religion then it it gives an answer so it has to grapple with that question it has to grapple with this question because in giving effect to the fundamental right of religion it has to first say that yes this is or is not a protected right next thing it said was the mere fact that the religious practice involves expense of money or employment of priests and servants or the use of marketable commodities would not make it a secular activity partaking of the commercial of commercial and economic character both are said therefore that a religious practice may have other secular activity connected with it and why did that concept arise because that is in the language of article 25 article 25 after conferring the right of religion on every citizen in this country went on to say went on to create 
an enabling structure. An enabling structure is a structure where you may or may not take advantage of it. Now the enabling structure that article 25 creates is that state may make laws, but state may not make laws relating to religious aspects. State may only make laws in relation to secular activity associated with religious practices. That's the language. What are secular activities? Economic, financial, political, and other things. It is not a definition which is complete by itself. But there it acknowledges, or in, it, in fact it makes that distinction, that there are secular activities which are associated with religious practices. Where, whereas state may not legislate in respect of religious practices, it may legislate in respect of secular activities associated with the religion. Immediately, therefore, the courts were drawn into this question as to which is or is not a secular activity connected with a religious practice and which is the religious practice itself. Because if it is the religious practice itself, no law enacted by the state will survive. And if it touches upon the secular activity, then it will be recognized. This is how, for instance, when hereditary priesthood, etc., etc., were sought to be abolished by legislation in the South, the court looked at it and said, that is a secular activity. Appointing a, a priest is not a religious practice. Now, it is not my purpose to justify this position. My purpose is to merely bring out the fact that that is the position today. The question again arose when the Tirupati case came up before the Supreme Court. And a very, what to my mind is a very amazing thing which happened was, academies were created to train priests. Of course, they have to, have, they have to be Hindus, they have to have whatever uh, qualifications are required. But academies were created. It was not any longer a hereditary position. And even today in Tirupati, it is my uh, understanding, I may be wrong, that there are priests who have been trained in these academies and therefore are authorized to perform religious uh, activities. Now, why? This, this, is, this is one aspect of state's intervention. First of all, it is an enabling position. That is to say, the state need not do it. It can just say, sorry, I don't think it is necessary to do this. The second thing is that if it, is, if it does it, then the dispute arises in courts as to whether it is a valid exercise for which the court has to look at what is a religious practice, what is a secular activity associated with it, etc., etc. The other problems which have arisen, which has led to uh, the interference by the state and the requirement of courts to go into it was, of course, number one, mismanagement and misappropriation of funds. I'm afraid it did happen. I mean, it didn't happen everywhere. It happens in some places. When that happens, it is 
in the interest of the Hindu devotee that such practices be controlled, be regulated. So therefore, I, I feel that there is a general uh, a consensus that the regulatory part of state legislation may be necessary. Most of the temples where management was sought to be taken over, and it may have got over-bureaucratized. I, I, don't, I don't dispute that. It is not as if when you replace one problem with, with another set of persons that a new set of problems are not arising. It may get over-bureaucratized. But the reason why these steps were taken by the state is important because they were all preceded by fact-finding missions. The committee that my uh, learned senior spoke about, C.P. Ramaswamy, the committee which is referred to in the um, Pannalal Pitti matter, which is uh, the Challa Kondaya Commission in Andhra Pradesh. These bodies, and by the way, again, in my experience, a very similar report came into existence in respect uh, to the Pandarkar temple in Maharashtra. All these were exercises which were done after a fact-finding mission which said that yes, there was lack of administration and the lack of uh, accountability as far as uh, the uh, finances are concerned. Now there may be many other ways of uh, remedying these things. It has been done by the state so far in this way. But state, and this is the fundamental thing that I want to put forward, the state represents in many ways the devotees. Because in a democratic system, how will the devotees work? The devotees often work through the state mechanisms because the, an accountable government is there and that government has to account to the dev devotees also. They are a very large section of our society and they also have to be, they, they must, their voice must be heard and in a democratic setup the voice is heard through the state mechanism. So if a state legislates, quite often the understanding of the state is that there is a public approval for it. And if there isn't a public approval for it, then the government feels that pressure also. And it will feel the pressure. So if, if things have gone wrong, then this enabling mechanism in the constitution can just as well be used to re-legislate and get rid of the problems which is seen to have developed over time. And another aspect in which there is state intervention and court uh, involvement is where, strangely enough, the, there isn't enough money in the temples to run the administration, to run the, in, uh, to keep the infrastructure going. Now, there are only a few temples in this country which are almost states in themselves, like Tirupati or uh, several others, which are rich temples. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of temples in this country which are not rich. And the amazing situation which has arisen is that the richest temple in the world, which we now know that Padmanabhaswami temple is, the richest temple in the world for decades have had a cash flow problem. Because it is not one of the temples like Sabrimala or Tirupati where there is a steady flow of devotees all the time. The strange consequence of this was that all the years that the 
Maharaja of Travancore was in charge of the temple alone. I mean, in the sense that only he was in charge of the temple. The infrastructure started crumbling. It's a strange thing because it is the richest temple in the world, but you can't take that gold and jewelry and treasures which have now been discovered from the Kalaras underneath. You cannot take that and start uh, rebuilding the temple. You can't do it just like that. So, state funds were required for various purposes in, in, in that temple. Now, the story of Padmanabha Swami temple is very interesting. It's not a tale which is very usual. What happened was that the temple itself was, as, as most of you know, was, dead, was created by the Maharaja of Travancore and the entire state was handed over to the deity. And Maharaja said, I will only rule Travancore as a Shabayat of the temple. So he called himself Padmanabha Das. And that is why the lovely story that Bhagavadji told us, that is why every morning he went, walked to the temple, did, the, uh, did puja and then came away and did his state duties. So much so, he took it so seriously that when Travancore was signing an accession treaty with India after independence, he said, how am I going to sign this treaty? The state doesn't belong to me. I'm only a Shabbat. So VP Menon, who was the man who was tasked with the, uh, with the job of persuading him to sign, had to have a theological discussion with him on this. And ultimately, it was decided that the accession treaty will keep aside the Padmanabha Swami temple from all other temples which the Maharaja was handing over to the, to the state. It will keep it aside and only the Maharaja and his agent will administer that temple. Now the problem arose because the, the Maharaja's title went. At some stage, the, with the abolition of uh, the title, the legislation which was brought into place in 1956 to ensure that the Maharaja of Travancore remains the trustee, that apparently vanished because there was no Maharaja of Travancore anymore. But the government did not at that stage interfere and take it over. Even today it hasn't. What it, what it did was, it merely assumed that because the accession treaty said that the Shebayat would be the family of the Travancore Maharaja, therefore they allowed the family of the erstwhile ruler of Travancore to continue to administer the temple. And the problem only arose because in the line of succession, some person in that family got into a dispute with a devotee. And the devotee went to the lowest court, to the district court, and said that remove the trustee. That went to the high court. The high, in the high court, the state government again said, we are not asking for removal of the Maharaja and his family from the, from the temple administration. But the high court felt that no, there is no Maharaja. The section says Maharaja. Therefore, we have to provide an alternative. It directed the state government to legislate. Now, there are legislations like the Guru Vayu legislation, etc. They said, you follow that pattern, you legislate. It came to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court initially said, we'll look at that later on. First of all, we are told that there is, that the accounts are not being properly maintained there. So, I'm, we are appointing an officer, a very a leading lawyer of this country, 
Mr. Gopal Subramaniam, he was appointed as the amicus curiae and committees were constituted under him for the purpose of renovation of the temple. And that committee consists of uh, archaeologist, the chief tantri, the priest, the main priest of the temple and a person whose knowledge on how to renovate Hindu temples is considered to be amongst the highest in this country. That's the kind of committee which was constituted. And ultimately, when the matter came to an end, the Supreme Court said that the Shebayat is the family of the Maharaja of Travancore, no doubt. But we will continue with this committee in which uh, there will be the uh, Chief Tantri and all that, which will first look into the various problems which has been indicated by the Controller and Auditor General, Mr. Vinod Rai, as having crept into the books, etc., etc. That's the stage at which the Padmanabhaswami Temple matter is today. So what you see here is a reluctance actually by the state to take over any religious, that particular religious institution. And why is there reluctance? Because there is an understanding, and I have spoken to people about it, there is an understanding in the state that the Maharaja of Travancore is a very devout and God-fearing person and is the proper person to be in charge of the administration of the temple. The state government had filed affidavits to that effect in the High Court, which is recorded in the Supreme Court order. So what I'm trying to say is that there are situations at times where state intervention may become necessary. There is an enabling provision in the, in the Constitution. And whatever be the position, it is a matter to be decided by the state. And that would reflect the wishes of the people of this country. And it seems to me that that is some sort of a safeguard. Of course, it is important that all the problems which have crept up in this process be brought to light. If there are 25,000 pages which show that there have been misuse of funds of a temple, then of course it, would, it should be brought to light. Because it is nobody's case that one mismanagement should be replaced by another mismanagement. That's, that's not the position at all. So therefore, this is a rough structure of where the, how the states are acting and how the courts are dealing with that situation. Now, 72 years of such jurisprudence is there. So it is impossible for me to summarize in any, any given time frame the entirety of it. So I think that it's better for us to discuss specific issues and see where the law stands now, see what the problem is, and then see where we can move forward. Thank you very much. Now, we have with us Nagarajji, who has been pioneering work doing for this temple. And he has some data, a lot of data. In fact, he can consume the whole day. I had to request him to complete in three, five minutes, just to give you the glimpse <laughs> how the resources are misappropriated. And with documentation proof, he will just uh, give a small presentation for five minutes since we are, as usual, already late by half an hour. <laughs> Let me start with, I think the best way to start, I have three things to say. Number one, everything that is happening in temples today 
is actually safeguarded by the laws which are supposed to protect those temples. What is happening today is fundamentally the mismanagement arising out of breaking those laws by the state government themselves. If the same crime was committed by a citizen vis-a-vis -vis any other institution, he would be jailed. Unfortunately for us, the bureaucrat cannot be jailed. That is where we are. Let me start the three things, like I said. First is the temple wealth. Padmanabha Swami temple, my esteemed senior counsel, Mr. Banerjee said, could not be maintained because there was paucity of funds, even though they were the most wealthy in the world. Reality, Padmanabha Swami temple owned thousands of acres of land taken over by the government and paid a paltry sum of less than 50,000 rupees per year. When actually the government should be paying Padmanabha Swami temple 250 crores per year. That is one. Second, in the four states of Tamil Nadu, our data proves that the wealth of land alone, land, sites, are not even going to Vigrahams or the jewels. The total land extent, agricultural land would probably be more than eight or nine acres, eight, eight or nine lakh acres. And our estimate of the lands, sites, buildings, etc., would be the income from the four southern states. Karnataka, Andhra Pradesh, Telangana, Tamil Nadu, Pondicherry would be roughly be about, take anything, 18 to 22 crores per year. If it was handed over to an authority and said, please manage it. It is also not true that only small temples are, uh, don't have any wealth. Only few large temples have wealth. Actually, small temples have enormous wealth. We have a temple near Kumbhakonam dedicated to Ramas, uh, uh, Sri Ram, Bhagavan Sri Ram which has some 15,000 acres of land. Nobody knows about it. In Chennai, Arunachaleshwar Temple, Swamiji has urban land where 2,400 square feet of land costs approximately 5 crores. People have squatting on those lands on a long-term lease by paying 12 paise per square feet per year. This is the wealth. Okay. And uh, I mentioned that is not just the wealth. Temples themselves are being demolished. We have a thousand-year-old temple in a place called Manambadi, built by Chola King, which has been demolished brick by brick. You can see those pictures there. Okay. The Medha Dakshinamurti has been taken out of the temple, and you will see the picture also. He's been, uh, next one, that is Medha Dakshinamurti in the temple. The God, the, 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 I should not say the God, I'm sorry, the deity whom we worship as the source of knowledge, he's kept under a tree. The several temples, Honorable Justice Kaul in Chennai High Court said, not even a brick should be moved from any temple. Honorable, at that time he was heading the Madras High Court. After the judge pronounced this, in our estimation, close to 13 temples are demolished. Okay. The, the court's writ does not run. Come to management. Almost 38,000 temples in Tamil Nadu and possibly equal number 
Andhra Pradesh has 35,000. Karnataka has another 32,000. In two of my hands, I can count the number of temples that have trustees from Sampradayas. The Act provides that trustees should be appointed. An executive officer can be appointed only if there is a mismanagement. Yet every temple in Tamil Nadu has does not have a trust, uh, trust board, neither in Kerala, nor, neither in Karnataka, nor Andhra Pradesh. The government has nominated executive officers to run them. Even after the 45 temples have executive officers in Tamil Nadu, whose position was stuck down by successive judgments of High Court and Supreme Court, and yet they continue, they actually continue without any legal sanction. I can go on, but I will, uh, my Pooja Swamiji has asked me to conclude quickly. I hope these facts are disturb us deeply, should disturb us when we move forward. I want to say one more thing, one last thing, because it was uh, mentioned. State cannot represent devotees. A secular state represents every individual citizen of that state. Devotees have different aspirations and values. So state, sir, cannot represent devotees, period. Okay. Denomination. B.K. Mukherjee in 1953 used Oxford Dictionary to give us the three definitions. 